Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. An anagram is a word or phrase that's formed by rearranging the letters of a different word or phrase and typically using all the original letters exactly once. So, for example, the word listen can be rearranged to make the word silent. And we got a great anagram from John Ward in Dallas, Texas. He takes the phrase 11 plus 2 and he anagrams those words and they become 12 plus 1. So it's 11 plus 2 and 12 plus 1. Both of those add up to 13 and they both have 13 letters. Oh, that's so nice. That's such an excellent aged worm. I mean, word game. Oh, aged worm. <laughs> aged worm. It's an anagram for word game. I guess it is. <laughs> this is a classic word puzzle type, right? Anagrams? Yes. Yes. It, and there are lots and lots and lots of these um, dormitory anagrams to dirty room. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. And I also like the Morse code anagrams to here come dots. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Well, if you would like to nag a ram with anagrams, you can call us, 877-929-9673. Send your favorite anagrams to words at waywardradio.org or share them through our website at waywardradio.org slash contact. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, Grant. It's Jennifer from Tallahassee. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Martha. Hi, what's up? Well, I have another question for you. I called once before. I'm a tutor, and I work with elementary age and up to high school age children and students. And I often use fun words with them, and I love words, and they know it. And the other day, I, um, it's citrus season here down south, and I had a satsuma orange, and I I gave the children a piece, I gave the student a piece, and I said, have a plug. And then I told them, I said, that's what someone told me a section of an orange is called, and I was all proud of this. And then later I went home and thought, is that true? Did I make that up? Where did I get that? And so so I did a little search on the etymology search about it, and I didn't find anything about a plug. I found something about a peg, but I am almost certain a long time ago, someone with a scientific background told me that indeed it was called a plug. So I wanted to check with you all so I don't mislead my students. So these are segments of a satsuma orange, and you just popped up the word plug. I did. But I thought that someone had taught me this a long time ago. Um, I'm not aware of plug being a term for a section of an orange. Um, there, there are other scientific words like carpel, C-A-R-P-E-L, which uh, comes from uh, an old word that means fruit. Um, and then there's segment and slice and wedge. And you mentioned, did you mention pig or peg? Peg. I when I looked it up mm-hmm. online, and I don't remember which you know online mm-hmm. dictionary I referenced, but I mm-hmm. thought I said something about a peg, but I was kind of uh-huh. hurried and fast, and so so I misled my students. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> this is a teachable moment, you know. This is uh, something you can go back to them and talk with them about a little bit more. Um, because the word peg is used for that uh, kind of thing. And also pig. Pig is a word pig. that is used, yes. <laughs> pig like oink, oink, pig. Yes. Um, probably because it's related to the word peg. Um, we're not sure. But... Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a, at a reference from an 1859 article that talks about the pigs of a dry orange. <laughs> Interesting. So I wonder if like peg and pig, if it just got, it took a little L blend in the beginning and changed the vowel and somehow, somehow somebody gave it to me as plug. Yeah, it's possible they Could got be. it wrong, that your memory is solid and they, they misremembered or misspoke. 
And it doesn't have to be oranges. Here's another reference from uh, from the 1950s. I squeezed my pig of lemon over the sliver of salmon. <laughs> well, well, not only that, it can be used for apple segments in the UK, particularly Scotland. But I want to go back to pig. One of the theories that I've read about why they might be called pigs is all the segments lined up in a row look like a piglets nursing all in a row. Oh, that's so, so right. So because it kind of radiates back to the little center. Yeah, so exactly. They're all focused on the mama. Um, little piggies. And another, another thing about pigs here is these are also historically referred to as gussies, G-U-S-S-I-E in Scotland, which also means pig. So it's used for pigs and mm. for citrus segments. Um, so there's and there's another term from Scotland going back at least to the 1700s where they're called liths, L-I-T-H, um, which is also used for the rings around the base of a cow's horn. So there's a lot, and I have a French term for this too, if you want it. <laughs> I'm ready. So if you look in La Rousse Gastronomique, which is one of the classic French cookbooks, you will find them talking about suprême. Uh, S-U-P-R-E-M-E with the carrot, the little hat on top, the E. And this not only refers to the segment of a citrus fruit, but also it's a verb for what you do when you segment it out. And so it probably comes from the many French dishes that have suprême in the name, but they involve deboning or separating meat at the joints, such as suprême de pigeon au chou et foie gras, which is supremed pigeon with cabbage and foie gras. <laughs> but the oh pigeon is goodness. deboned. The pigeon is separated out. You know, the pigeon is, bo- you know, all the bones are pulled away, so you have all the different pigeon pieces. Well, instead of but one yeah, that, but sure, but that kind of makes sense because you know when you eat citrus, you know, it kind of is a bit of a, a pulling out and getting those long lines. There'd be another one. What are those things called? You know, those stringy. <laughs> I don't know, but they're so good. They're... I like them. <laughs> I know there's a term for banana strings. I think it's. Um... It's uh, flow, phloem bundles, oh. <laughs> if you want to talk about bananas, P-H-L-O-E-M, phloem bundles. So like Martha said, Jennifer, when you go back to your students, you have a teachable uh-huh. moment and more to tell them. Much more. Thank you so much. So I will make this a very happy mistake. I'll yep. say, look, look at this wonderful <laughs> mistake. We've got pigs and gussies and lifts and well, we could even segue into banana strings, you know? I mean, there's <laughs> lots of possibility here. There's so much. <laughs> Well, Jennifer, you sound like congrats. Uh, I just want to say thanks for being an educator. You are our people, and thanks for calling us. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye bye. 877-929-9673. You know, you can take the word conversation and anagram it. It becomes voices rant on. Oh, that's you and me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't rant very much, but you can rant at us on the phone. one 929 is toll-free in the United States and Canada. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi, my name is Patrick. I'm calling you from Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Hey, Patrick. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Well, I have this little saying that my paternal grandmother used to use. My dad used it, I use it, and I've even kind of passed it on to friends of mine, and I have no idea where this little quip comes from, so maybe you can help me out. Um, I remember as a kid, my, my grandmother, when something would work out really well, or perhaps something turned out exactly the way you wanted it to, she would say, that's just like downtown. And I have come to use that little phrase, uh, even recently I was helping a friend do some tiling in a bathroom and there was one particular piece that was really kind of intricate and had to fit just right and I got it cut just right and it slid right in and I said just like downtown and I have no idea where that phrase even comes from and what its original uh, meaning is so if you can clarify and help me that would be great so are we to understand this means that everything went as you wanted to things are going well um, it's as good as it can be that's exactly the way I have always used it and interpreted it to mean. Yeah, if something turns out perfectly the way you want it to, you say it's just like downtown. It is a curious expression. There's another variant that Martha and I talked about on the show years ago, just like New York. And both of these expressions have to do with the way that theatrical advertising used to present itself, say, in newspapers or on on. on 
bills, you know, paper bills pasted up on streets. Um, and they used that line, just like downtown, as far back as the 1930s, as a kind of no kidding. way of saying that you could see shows at the theaters in the hinterlands that weren't downtown, but they would be just as good as the shows at the fancy theaters in the heart of the city where the action was. And it would literally have the phrase, just like downtown. So so you wouldn't have to drive in, say, to, you know, the Great White Way in New York City to see the show. You could see the <laughs> same show, just like downtown, maybe, you know, in Westchester in New York or wherever. But it wasn't only New York. Um, it, it was used um, in the Midwest as well. But yeah, 1930s, it well, shows up. And, and it's just really that whole idea that downtown is where the excitement is. Yeah. Well, my grandmother was from northern Iowa which is nowhere near downtown anywhere. It's just kind of rural out in the middle of nothing. So uh, that it's starting to make sense now. So, yeah, so I'm I'm certainly, the way I use it and the way she used it, I think it's certainly different from seeing, you know, a a Broadway show or a big production, but Mm -hmm. it it is kind of along the same lines. If something is is what you expect it to be or, or, you know, really hits the big time, it's just like downtown. Yeah, yeah. It's as good as it could be, right? It's as good as the best possible case. Which is obviously we all think yeah. about the, you know, you can see a show on tour, right? Whether it's a musician or right. a theatrical production, but seeing it on Broadway is a whole different thing. True that, yeah, <laughs> I know the difference. I do appreciate you clarifying that for me. I'm going to keep using it because it's a fun little phrase, and I've even got some friends who've started using it, and it it works when it applies properly. Yep, agreed, absolutely. Thank you so much for your call, Patrick. Cool. All right, thank you so Take much. Take care of Bye-bye. yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. Just like downtown, or just like New York, just I, I, like it's catchy too. There's a there's a cadence to it. Just like downtown, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just it makes it sound like, yep, I tiled that bathroom just like downtown. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like that, you can give us a call eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three to talk about language. <laughs> We've talked many times about how linguistic misunderstandings can be fun. There was a post on social media from Gareth P. Jones that I really loved. It went, I only realized my daughter was misreading the gingerbread man recipe when she announced that we needed either one or four teaspoons of salt. I looked and saw... You know where this is going. Yeah, I sure do. He says, I looked and saw that we needed one quarter teaspoon of salt. And by this point, I had already added one or two teaspoons of ginger, mixed spice and cinnamon. (laughs) So, of course, she misunderstood one slash four as either one or four. Share your linguistic misunderstandings with us. 877-929-9673. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine a way with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And who is this stepping out of a blue phone box? It's John Chinesky, our quiz guy. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. This week, it's one of our staples, the takeoff. It's a variation on a National Puzzlers League puzzle type, but it's very simple. Take a word, take off its first letter, and a new word is left behind. That's it. 
I'll read a sentence that contains clues to both the original word and the resulting word, and you tell me both of them. Now, this week, we're taking off the letter M from the beginning of all these words. For example, if I said, the knight was an expert at swigging a heavy spiked club, now, a heavy <laughs> spiked club is a you know what mace. A and mace. So he was and an if, ace at the mace. Right, an expert. Ace is a word for an expert. So yeah, M mace, mace M ace mace. Very good. Okay, here's the first clue. The first man introduced himself to the fancy lady. <laughs> the first man introduced himself to the fancy lady. Madam and Adam. Madam and Adam. That's even uh, part of a that's a, a classic. Famous thing, yes. Madam, Adam. They were the most accomplished sorcerers in many, many years. <laughs> mm. Mages and ages. Yes, mages. Oh, good. I should sorcerers. have thought of that. I read so much fantasy fiction I with know. mages in it. And ages, many, many years is ages. Very good. If he finds the cattle trough empty, you're the one who will face his wrath. Ooh. Anger, danger? Manger. Manger. Manger, <laughs> yes. The sparse pantry had me craving a decent meal. Hmm. So, so empty cabinet. And the hmm. pickings were meager. Yes. Oh, very so good. So it made me... Eager. Yes, it made me eager for a decent meal, a craving a decent meal. Very good. Very one. good. Yeah. Now that we joined the troop, we were responsible for putting out the dregs of the campfire. Um, oh. Ashes and... Mm, That's ashes. what I was thinking, but what about no. members and embers? Ah, yes, members and embers is correct. Now that our feud had drawn to a close, we fixed the fence between our backyards. <laughs> Ended and mended. Yes, ended and mended. Very good. Finally, the tale the storyteller recited had a deep, meaningful lesson. Ooh. Yeah, the, the oral the mm. oral and moral. I'm not quite yes, sure how to fit them in there. Yes, oral and moral. Oral recited is oral, and a meaningful lesson is moral. Very good. You guys got them all. And then, uh, the moral oh, of that tale is, yay. is work on your quizzes, and you'll get better just like these guys. Well, John, thank you so much. I'm sorry you have to take off. Ah, very good. Yes, I will take <laughs> off. Those are M takeoffs for today, and I'm going to take off. Take care, guys. All right, take care. Give our best to the family. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> and we'd love for you to take a moment and go to your phone and call us to talk about language, 877-929-9673, or send us an email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. This is Amber Hoadley calling from Reno, Nevada. How are you guys? We're all right. I'm fantastic. It's nice to talk to you, Amber. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much. I'm really curious. I was born and raised in the South, um, but I've pretty much just been traveling the West in my van for the last eight years or so, and I've finally settled down in Reno, Nevada, uh, and I've lived here for about six months, and I've just noticed um, a lot recently that whenever myself, or I've noticed other people saying it, whenever I say thank you, the response is just, yeah. And coming from the South where most people say you're welcome or they say thank you back, it's just been such an interesting shift to me. And I'm just very curious, like, did it get shortened from something? Is this just because I'm close to California and it's a little bit more casual language out here? I'm just, I've never heard that before and I've been noticing it more and more and more. So yeah, I just wanted to ask you all about it. So you're in a store and you have an exchange with the clerk and then you say thank you and they say, yeah. Is that the way exactly. it works? Exactly. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, this is, you can find many discussions of this online, so that tells us that it's not that new. Uh, so just to, okay. to clear that up. But but what you're encountering here is a different politeness tradition. So it's not necessarily a change so much as that you are geographically displaced. You're out of the ordinary politeness environment that you grew up with or are most familiar with. 
And so some people may perceive that as rude. I love that when you said, yeah, you did that rising tone with it because that that is important because that indicates they are trying to introduce into this conversation a formality level which shows mm-hmm. politeness and respect because they see you as an equal, a peer or a colleague. Okay. So that's kind of what's happening here. If they just said, yeah, then you might have thought it was rude. But that, yeah, is, is demonstrates that there's still a tone of politeness there. There's still a, a feeling of, I see you, customer, as, as, a, as a peer of mine. And we have, a, we have an equal relationship. Cool. That's so fascinating. Yeah, it definitely... It always sounds very happy. It doesn't sound dismissive in any way. So I was just curious if it had gotten shortened from something. But that's so interesting to me. Well, it could be, uh, yeah, you're welcome, or yeah, of course, or or, or yeah, no problem. But uh, really, when we have these encounters where two people are in these commercial situations, there's kind of a script where it really doesn't matter how you say thank you. And it doesn't really matter how they respond as long as both parties respond at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's very true. That's a good point. But sometimes when you have those, Martha, we've talked about this before, when you have those differing politeness traditions, there can be a perception that if you're not getting exactly the response you're used to, that the other person is rude. Right. Yeah, we get a lot of complaints from people who are unhappy that people uh, say, no problem. You know, as if Mm. it's not a problem for them. But um, I think it sort of doesn't matter what the word is. Now that you're talking about this, um, I'm thinking that a lot of times when people thank me, I'll say, sure. You, you know, which mm-hmm. isn't your well, it's it's more like, yeah, that's that's kind of what I mm-hmm. mean. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you could, you know, say popcorn or something. It's, it's more <laughs> the tone of the voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm you try that you completed time. the transaction by fulfilling <laughs> your role in the script with some sound that acknowledged their statement. Right. And, right. and it's hard to break away from knowing that the. It's not really the actual words they say you say. It's that you say any words at all. That's the politeness part. That's where the most content is being transmitted, is that you returned their remark. Right. In, in your facial expression and, and just your body language. So, yeah, Amber, maybe, as you said, maybe you'll try popcorn or Labrador retriever or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but people do say things like my pleasure or anytime. Yeah. And they often yeah. come with that same tone that you said, yeah, anytime, my pleasure. Oh, this kind of high-pitched wave uh, phrasing Hopefully I can chat again with you all soon. This has been so fun. Thank you for answering the question. Our pleasure. Take care of yourself, Amber. (laughs) Bye. It is no problem for you to call us anytime, and it would be our pleasure, 1-877-929-9673, or send us email to words at waywardradio.org. Maria Grant from Plano, Texas, sent us a lovely Spanish word. It's desahogar. So that's D-E-S-A-H-O-G-A-R? Yes, exactly. And it has lots of meanings. It can mean to vent to somebody or to let your emotions out by crying or to confide in somebody just telling them what is making you sad at the moment. And the wonderful thing about desahogar is that it comes from the verb Ahogar, which means to drown. And so desahogar literally means to undrown. Isn't that gorgeous? Oh, yeah. So there's like connotations of rescue and resuscitation and and the aid of another person. Yeah, or just just, uh, reversing the process. You know, there's also an expression in Spanish, ahogarse en un vaso de agua, which uh, means to drown in a glass of water. Uh, literally, but it means to get overwhelmed by a problem that's really not all that much. (laughs) Mountain out of Mohill. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's a lovely word. We are super language aficionados, meaning when you share your language tidbits with us, we read them, love them, adore them, absorb them. Share your language tidbits then. Words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Micah. I'm calling from Council Bluffs, Iowa. Hi, Micah. Welcome to the show. 
Um, I was calling about the word sockdologer. I was actually reading a book about the history of Omaha in the 1800s, and there were these two uh, newspaper editors that were always poking at each other in their editorials, and they met on the street one day and got into a fight, and uh, the, the third paper reported on it, saying that one of them had put in a sockdologer on the other one's jaw, and I just thought it was a fun word. And then Whoa. I started thinking about <laughs> yeah. on, and, um, on his I, jaw. Yeah, I put in a sockdologer on him, so it, I'm assuming it was it's a it's a punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and other things. Yeah, but yeah, punch. Yeah. So then, uh, that the was such a fun word. It kind of stuck in my head, and then um, I wondered if that maybe was where we got um, our word for sock. Like, if you were to sock someone, like to punch them. If that maybe was the route for that, and I thought I know just the people to call. Well, gosh, I'm still back on the newspaper editors. I mean, this was this was not a verbal fisticuffs. This was <laughs> actually punching each other in the middle of the street. So this is this is how the online bickering happened before online was possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were trolls even in the newspaper days, and it's so slow they just had to get out on the street and do it in real time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So one of them landed a sockdologer. And you're right. I mean, a sockdologer is a knockout punch or a heavy blow or just just the punch that puts an end to everything. It just it just stops uh, the fight cold because the person uh, gets knocked out or, or gets hit hard enough that, uh, that they give up. Sockdologer. And um, the word sock preceded sockdologer. Sockdologer probably comes from the word sock it, and it's uh it's this early 19th century americanism that that comes from a time uh when there was a lot of linguistic exuberance in this country people were forever making up fun words like sockdologer or absquatulate meaning to leave or something like that you don't hear it much anymore um but uh mark twain used the term uh, sockdologer when he was uh writing about uh, lightning and thunder in Huck Finn. Then rip comes another flash and another sockdologer. He's talking about you know, oh. a resounding thunder. And uh, one more cool point about the term sockdologer is that the adjectival form sockdologizing is famous. Do you know why <laughs> it's famous? No. Sockdologizing is famous for being one of the last <laughs> words that Abraham Lincoln ever heard. Yeah, you'll remember that on April 14th, 1865, he goes to Ford's Theater to see the play Our American Cousin. And this is about Uh an awkward guy from rural Vermont who goes to visit his aristocratic cousins in England. And he outsmarts the posh Mrs. Mount Chessington. And at one point, Mrs. Mount Chessington makes this snide remark about how this guy from Vermont isn't used to the good manners of good society. And he says, don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sockdologizing old man trap. And supposedly that was the line that got the biggest laugh of the play. And John Wilkes Booth was waiting, listening to, in hopes that uh, that would cover the sound of his shot when the, when the audience erupted into laughter. But the line was, you sockdologizing old man trap, because she was trying to trap him into marrying her daughter because he's about to inherit a fortune. So sockdologizing has this really interesting history. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to start using this in my regular conversation now. <laughs> yeah, I think it deserves to be revived. Sockdologer. You can spell it a lot of different ways. Slockdologer or slogdologer. There, there are lots of different ways because it was sort of an irregular kind of word. But the one that it's standardized on is S-O-C-K-D-O-L-A-G-E-R. Yeah, we should mention that. Well, Micah, thank you so much <laughs> for reaching out. We really appreciate it. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Take care. Take care, Mike. You too. Bye. Well, like Micah, if you've come across an interesting word in your reading and want to talk with us about it, the number is 877-929-9673. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. My name is Jody, and I'm calling from Norfolk, Virginia. 
Hi, Jody. Welcome. What's up? My husband and I were looking to go to dinner, and a new pizza place popped up in our neighborhood. Uh, it was um, they were advertising Connecticut style pizza, and the restaurant is called District, and it's a pizza. So it was called District of Pizza, and so we go into the restaurant and we look at the menu, and they said that their pizza place is District of Beats because that's how they pronounce it in Connecticut. And so I want to know why it's pronounced a beats instead of a pizza and where it came from. I love that Connecticut-style pizza is uh, branching out into the rest of the country, which is why you're having this question, because you wouldn't usually encounter this, at least in the United States, outside of Connecticut. Exactly. The, so a pizza, they're spelling the word pizza with an A at the beginning, right? Correct. Yeah, and say the, how do they pronounce it again? Abits. Like Abits. It, like it would be A-B-E-E-T-S, Abits. With a stress on the last syllable, right? Abits. Correct, correct. Uh, it's really a curious little dialect remnant of having to do with Italian immigrants settling in Connecticut. There are two Italian dialect things that have happened here. One is a pizza is a contraction of the two words la pizza, which is Italian for pizza. So a, a pizza is now one word where it used to be two, la pizza. The second thing that happens is there's a tradition of lenition. This is a, a softening or weakening of a, of a syllable in the form of what's known as apocope, in which the final syllable is swallowed or dropped uh, especially when it's following a stressed syllable. So you see this in other words, like mozzarella becomes mozzarella, or prosciutto becomes prosciutto. And, and many of these are from Southern Italian dialects. And uh, many of the people who came to the New World from what is now Italy came here before Italian was more standardized and when Italian dialects were even stronger and more, more regional. And a lot of these maybe are Neapolitan, for example, although there are others. And it just so happens that many of them settled in New Haven, Connecticut in particular, but nearby as well in Connecticut, and brought their food traditions, their food ways with them. And so their particular dialect pronunciation of pizza, a pizza, which is, they say is a pizza, uh, which has that last syllable disappearing, uh, is now just kind of a, a tradition in New Haven. And I guess it's now a tradition in Norfolk, Virginia as well. It has come down here, and they, um, it's delicious. They say it's coal-fired instead oh, yeah. of, I guess, yeah, so it's a little charred on the bottom, but it was thin and delicious. Oh, yeah, that's so good. What's your go-to on toppings? I am a pepperoni mushroom type of girl. All right, mushrooms, yeah. I have a hard time convincing anyone in my family to get mushrooms on a pizza, but that's, that's my fave. <laughs> Well, next time you have a Beats uh, in Norfolk or New Haven, think of us, all right? I will. Next time I have an Abits, I'm going to send a picture. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. Please do. <laughs> all right. Jody, take care of yourself. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. We'd love to hear about food language in your part of the world, so give us a call, 877-929-9673. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's gum.fm slash w-o-r-d-s. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett, and I think I have found a great answer to a question that was raised in an earlier episode. You may remember Amanda in Tucson, Arizona, who wanted an alternative to kill two birds with one stone. You remember right, had... I remember that. Yeah, and we got a lot of feedback on that, people who said uh, they had better ideas, and people who said, why change it at all? Right, right. And she was lobbying for feed two birds with one seed, uh, which I like. But I think we actually got an even better one. This came from Shuba Iyer, who grew up in India. And she says, in our mother tongue, we have an equivalent benign version. And she points out among speakers of the Tamil language, there's a commonly used phrase for the same idea. 
and it's Urukalil Irandu Mangai, which translates as one stone, two mangoes. And the idea there is that you throw a stone at a mango tree and two mangoes drop to the ground. Oh, wonderful. That's 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 exactly the spirit of it, isn't it? Yes. The idea of yes. accomplishing two things with one effort. Yes. So I really appreciated getting that. And then we heard from Cynthia Cox Gerard, who's a pastor in Midland, Georgia. And she wasn't talking about that phrase specifically, but she pointed out that a parishioner told her about a more delicate way to tell somebody to get off the pot. And the phrase that this person used was, painter, get off the ladder. (laughs) Definitely more polite, the kind of thing that you can say around your pastor. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Cynthia says the light bulb that inevitably goes off in the listener's head when they hear this for the first time is fun to behold. Right, because a ladder kind of prevents more than one person doing the job at the time if it's up on top of the ladder. (laughs) (laughs) True. And one more email that I wanted to share is from Matt Welter, who lives in Wisconsin, and responding to our conversation with 11-year-old Josiah, who was looking for a term to describe a road that's largely free of traffic. You remember that call, Grant? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Matt writes, in Green Bay, we have a term for that. The game has started. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. you. It's weird sometimes when you're driving down the streets in San Diego and you don't know that there's uh, something happening at Petco right. Park where the Padres are playing. You're like, where is everyone? This store should be packed right now. And you're like, oh, yeah, they're watching the game. Right. right. Why didn't the emergency warning go off on right, my right, phone? Right, right, right. What do they know that I don't know? Let me check the websites of the newspapers. We're always on the lookout for new ways to say old things or old ways to say new things. Give us a call, 877-929-9673. That's toll-free in the United States and Canada, or you can email us from anywhere in the world, words at waywardradio.org. And if you'd like to leave us a voice note on WhatsApp, we've got a number for that, too. You can find it at waywardradio.org slash contact. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Patty Adams. Hi, Patty. Where are you calling from? San Diego, California. Well, hello, neighbor. neighbor. (laughs) What's on your mind? Hi. I was thinking about the lack of a word. I can't find a word for that period of sleeplessness in the middle of the night that I find more and more people complain about. You you, uh, are up for awake for a couple of hours in the middle of the night. And I was just thinking about it in the middle of the night. Um, as to why there isn't a word for it. You know, like when you take a nap during the day, you are in a period of sleepfulness. But when you are awake in the middle of the night, you're just awake. There's no word for it. And I thought the only people that would know the answer to this question would be you guys. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) We'll find out. Uh, yeah, my first instinct is just to flip nap around and call it a pan, but that doesn't really work. One hundred percent, that was mine as well. <laughs> yeah, but it just it just just means too many other things, right? Exactly. Oh, that's so great. I like that. I never thought of that, but I'm thrilled that you asked about this because I am obsessed with sleep. I mean, I mean, I think of sleep as one of my hobbies, and I'm fascinated with when people go to sleep and when they wake up, and and if if they're awake during the night. And I'm wondering, you mentioned complaining about that period. Um, does it happen to you every night? Um, almost every night. I happen to really love that period. Because for me, um, it's a period of, of what's been described as non-anxious wakefulness. I think especially for people who uh, are writers or uh, creatives, sometimes that's, a, that's just sort of a, an almost hypnotic um, period of time uh, when you just lie there and you think creatively. And the French have a lovely word for that. Uh, it's dorve, which um, means wake sleep. It, it comes from the same roots as, as dormitory and reveille, sleep and wake. Uh, dorve, uh-huh. which is um, D-O-R-V-E-I-L-L-E, dorve. And, um, huh. and it refers to that period of time when you're just sort of awake and maybe you're thinking. Um, but 
what I would recommend to you is a, a wonderful book by a guy in who's a professor of history at Virginia Tech. His name is Roger Eckrich, and he was studying public records of uh, pre-industrial Europe, and he started seeing all these references to first and second sleep first sleep and second sleep. And then he started looking around. It turns out there's an Italian term for this. And he looked around even more. And there were all these records in Africa, in the Middle East, in South Asia, in Latin America, where people were talking about the first sleep and the second sleep. And then there's this period of time in between, um, you know, before we had electric lights and all that, when people would get up and just do (coughs) stuff. (laughs) Ben Franklin liked to stand in front of the window naked during that period of time and take a take a cold air bath yeah <laughs> so I mean yeah, wow. I don't know if you want to try that but um, I mean do you, do you just lie there and and think the whole time or did did you think about getting up and I don't know no I'm single so generally what I do is turn on the TV and find mm. something that is mm. kind of mindless and yeah right mm. not hard on TV um so Martha, the 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 fait uh, to to make yourself to to become wakeful or to sleep or doze or to to drowse is really good, but we still don't have we still don't really have a noun in English for that period between first and second sleep. I really like your idea of pan. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, there is an adjective semisomnous, which means half asleep, and. And there's a medical term, hypnopompic, which describes that semi-wakefulness uh, period between sleep and full consciousness. But that's still not that it's an adjective, and it's still not describing the the, the time period. It's still describing you, your your own mental state. And then there's Japanese uh, uto uto or utsura utura, um, which is about fluctuating between being awake and being asleep. I really recommend this book by Roger Eckrich about it. It's uh, it's called At Days Closed, Night in Times Past. It's about the history of sleep, and it's it's really fascinating. Maybe you could get up in the middle of the night and read it. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> At Days Closed, okay. I don't know that we've named that period between the first and second sleep, but it must be encouraging to know that many other people have that. Indeed, and it's interesting that it would actually have a word in other languages. So Mm -hmm. I think we should keep researching it. Take care of yourself, Patty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. We got a text from Ruth Brown in Tucson, Arizona, and I just loved it. She said, As newlyweds, my husband David and I were so pleased to have friends over to eat with us. We proudly got out our wedding china, and as David brought in the soup, he announced we made this and were even serving it in our soup latrine. (laughs) (laughs) Poor David. (laughs) Latrine instead of terrine. Oh, I bet that one never gets old. (laughs) You're exactly right. That was the rest of the text. Needless to say, it's been called the soup latrine ever since. Oh, David, I hope you know this isn't the spirit of fun, but that's a genius remark. <laughs> we, we like it when you poke fun at your own language mishaps rather than the mishaps of other people. Share your embarrassing language moments with us, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Byron Rowe. Hi, Byron. Where are you calling us from? Jacksonville, Florida. We're glad to have you, Byron. What's on your mind today? Well, I, I listened to your show, and it piqued my interest because I, I, as I listen, I think of things that I heard in my in my upbringing from my mother usually, and uh, there was something that she used to say, and I wanted to see what you all thought about it. Fire away. So um, if she heard something or experienced something that, that really kind of astonished her or kind of took her aback, she would say, oh... If that don't beat all, but sometimes if it was really something amazing or something that really took her for a loop, she would say that beats Bobtail and Bobtail beats the devil. And I never gave it much thought when I was a child. I just listened to it. But as an adult, remembering it, 
I just kind of wonder what she was talking about when she said that beat Bobtail and Bobtail beats the devil. What is Bobtail? Because I thought nothing beat the devil. Uh, <laughs> I was just wondering what, what, what that could mean. <laughs> yeah, you've got the you've got the order of events there. Usually nothing beats the devil, but if it's something extraordinary, it would be extraordinary for something to beat the devil. And, and Bobtail in this case is a uh, it's a horse. Uh you trim the tail of a horse so that the hair is all short and that's a bob, just like a woman can get a bob, which means a short haircut. So the Bobtail often was a horse nickname or an actual name for a horse, and you can find it in old horse racing records. Bobtail came in second in such and such race or so forth. And so, yeah, it's just, just the idea here that this, this horse is named Bobtail, and um, Bobtail's amazing, and Bobtail beat the devil. But whatever we're talking about right now, this exciting event, this beats both of them. <laughs> so Okay. There was a... A bit of folklore that came out of this, uh, uh, African-American folklore that tells a story where Bobtail isn't a horse, but is a rabbit who beats the devil and, and tricks the devil into giving the rabbit uh, the food that it wants, the, the plants that it wants to eat. But um, that's old, uh, the, the expression is older. It's about 200 years um, than the, the folklore, which is, is substantially newer. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like to beat the band or to, like you said, to beat all. Don't that beat all? Doesn't that beat everything? Yeah. But how did Bob tell a rabbit beat the devil? I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah. Were they running a race or what? No, no. The, so the so the way this, I wasn't going to tell the story, but the way the story goes is the rabbit says to the devil, you know, let's plant our crops together and you can have the bottom of the crops and I'll have the tops. So the devil says, all right. And so when it comes time to gather the crops, um, the rabbit had all the grain that grew above ground and the devil didn't have anything but roots. So the next time the devil says, well, that's not fair. I, I, let's do this again next year, but I'm going to have the tops and you have the bottoms. And the rabbit says, all right, all right, let's do that. So the next year they raise sweet potatoes. So the rabbit gets all the sweet potatoes, which are <laughs> under the ground, and the devil gets nothing but the green parts that he can't eat. <laughs> And the wow, rabbit's name was Bobtail. Bob. But that, again, that's, that, that bit of folklore comes from the expression and is not the source of the expression. So, so then my mother must have been somewhat familiar with that story, or even if she didn't know the background, like I didn't know the background, mm -hmm. she, she had heard the expression or the story somewhere along the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some so somewhere in the long way, or she could have just heard the expression without the story. But, but it's a, it's colorful, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate that insight. Yeah, now I know pleasure. what she was talking about. Thanks for talking <laughs> with us today, Byron. Yes, thank you so much. All right, take care of yourself. <laughs> okay, all right. Bye bye. Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Joan McCarthy calling from. Battendorf, Iowa. What's on your mind, Joan? I was reminiscing about a word or a phrase. Back in the 80s, we had a little Toyota Corolla. It was like a little station wagon, kind of a bronze color. And we had four kids, so they were all really little. And uh, we'd pile them into the station wagon, and they'd go, and I, they'd have all this stuff in their hands. And I'd say, well, just put it in the way back. Put it in the way back. And... I had never heard anybody really use that phrase before, and I felt like I made it up, but I don't know if I did. You haven't heard anybody else use the term way back for the part of a station wagon or a van that's way, way back, the farthest, farthest row of seats. Is that right? I actually have. I actually have heard other people use it, but I didn't know if maybe they heard me say it and they just ah. latched onto it. No, the truth is that, uh, Joan, plenty of people have used the term way back for that uh, part of a car. I mean, all the way back in the 1960s and 70s, remember how big those station wagons were? They they were enormous. And if you weren't riding uh -huh. shotgun up in the front seat um, and you were sitting all the way back in the that last row, I mean, it is the way back of a car. Yeah. And 
You know, what's funny is that years ago, we had a caller from Maryland who said that she used the term way back and her kids made fun of her. And she was wanting us to tell her that it was a legitimate word. And absolutely it is. And we put the call out to our listeners and we heard from people all over the country who use the term way back for that part of a car. It's not the term that I used growing up in Kentucky. We called it the back back or the back back too. And uh, other people have other terms for it like backity back or the back of the back. But but you're perfectly within your rights, Joan, to use the term way back for that. Oh, well, good. I'm I'm, uh, sad that I didn't make it up though. (laughs) <laughs> well, we pick oh, up. We often credit. We often don't remember <laughs> where did. we learn our words, right? We just most words that we say, we have no idea where we got them from. <laughs> it just it just seemed appropriate, you know, to um, give that directive to four little kids yeah. to make them understand where they were supposed to put their junk. It is entirely possible <laughs> that you did come up with it independently, but so did other people. So it's it's out there. <laughs> I always understood well, way back to refer to the the non-seat storage area, though, in the back of a van or a station wagon. But you guys think it's the, the last row of seats? Well, sometimes it's adjustable. Oh, yeah, gotcha. I think of it as a storage because our little Toyota station wagon just had a front seat and a back seat. And uh-huh. the way back where there were there were no seats. Gotcha. And then uh, yeah, we we never had one of those station wagons where they had the third row that faced the back. Mm-hmm. We just oh, had yeah. the storage area. Well, Joan, thank you so much for sharing your memories with us, and um, we would love to have you back on the show some other time. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Share your language memories with us, 877-929-9673, or send them to us in email, words at waywardradio.org. Our team includes senior producer Stephanie Levine, engineer and editor Tim Felton, and quiz guide John Chinesky. We'd love to hear from you, no matter where you are in the world. Go to waywardradio.org contact. Subscribe to the podcast, hear hundreds of past episodes, and get the newsletter at waywardradio.org. Whenever you have a language story or question, our toll-free line is open in the U.S. and Canada, 1-877-929-9673. Or send your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. Special thanks to Michael Breslauer, Josh Eccles, Claire Grotting, Bruce Rogo, Rick Seidenworm, and Betty Willis. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Hey, listeners, we have a favor to ask. We'd love for you to fill out our listener survey at gum.fm slash words. Your feedback is crucial. It's quick, and it helps us make our show even better. It shapes our show, helps us plan, and ensures we're bringing you the content you love. That's gum.fm slash words. Thanks for being a part of what we do. Thank you.